going to cover verses 20 through 26. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Pastor John will slip you a Bible. But John chapter 17, the last couple of weeks we've been looking at this chapter that the great reformer John Knox called the Holy of Holies of Scripture. And of course, in this prayer of Jesus, remember that this is part of the Upper Room Discourse. It started in chapter 13 where Jesus is in that upper room with his disciples. Uh, it is Judas the betrayer who has already left, and he is gathering the troops to go to the Garden of Gethsemane because that's where Jesus spent a lot of his time, was in the garden with his disciples. He knew that Jesus would be there. They're going to arrest Jesus, but Jesus and his, uh, those who are with him, the 11 that are his, that he has been teaching them. He's been sharing with them his heart. He's been telling them you don't have to be troubled in your hearts. As they don't understand everything that's going on right now. And somewhere between the upper room at the end of chapter 14, as Jesus said, let us arise and go from this place, to where they will go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus here in chapter 17, he stops and he prays and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he would pray for himself in verses 1 through 5. And in that, we talked about how you and I, as we pray, how we can pray for ourselves. What is the will of God uh, in doing that? So, Father, we ask that we want to just continue to learn from this prayer here as Jesus prays for us here in this room, those of us who are believers. And, Lord, we're thankful that we are here, that there is love and unity within the brethren, and Lord, um, as we talk about these things, I pray that as um, families here that come and uh, as a church family, that it would really touch our hearts and, and that we would apply it in our lives. And so, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to have these words that Jesus prayed, uh, our great high priest, uh, that is recorded for us, that we may learn and be encouraged and built up and Lord, just uh, know you more um, and your goodness and your faithfulness to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So in verse 1, Jesus would pray, this is the hour. In other words, this is what I came to do, to die, to go to the cross of Calvary so that you may be glorified, Father. And he has used the word term Father uh, 53 times in this upper room discourse. And as we learn from this, as you and I pray for ourselves, may we uh, be able to say that, Lord, my desire in my life is to die. That is, die to self, pick up my cross, and follow after you. And as I do that, I know that you will be glorified. And then in verse 4, as we kind of sum up where we've been so far in this prayer, that Jesus would also pray that I have finished the work as he would go to Calvary, he would hang on that cross, dying for your sins and my sins, and then he would cry out from the cross, it is finished. I've done the work. I've paid the price for sinful humanity. And that's such the glorious news that you and I have in our hearts that has brought forgiveness and salvation to you and to me, is that Jesus finished the work. He went to the cross. He set his face to to go to Jerusalem to die for you and for me, and then he was put into a grave and he rose again. And as we learn here, as Jesus said, that I finished the work, that you and I, that our prayer should be, Lord, I want to finish the work that you have for me. Wherever he has placed you, whatever he's put on your heart, as a godly man, as a godly woman, that, Lord, I just want to finish 
my race. And as Paul would say in Acts chapter 20, I want to finish my race with joy. The, the race that you've given to me, each one of us have a race to run. And so may we finish that race that the Lord has for us and just living for the Lord and growing in our love for Him. And then last week we covered verses 6 through 19 that we read that Jesus began to pray for His disciples. And summing that prayer up, of course, in verse 6, He would pray that, Father, I have manifested, or that is, shine forth your name, your character, your nature, Father. Jesus not only declared the Father to these disciples and to the world, but he manifested um, the Father to them. The heart, the love, the nature of the Father. He had said earlier in this upper room discourse, as we read in chapter 14, that Jesus said that if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And may we as Christians be ones that we manifest the Lord in our lives. Manifest the Lord in our behavior and in our faith and in our speech and in our love and our purity. And then also we saw in verse 8 that Jesus would say that I'd given them the words that you've given to me. In verse 17, sanctify them by your truth for your word is truth. So again, as we apply it in our lives, may we be ones that... We are taking in the word of truth, the word of God, and also as we realize that we take in the word of God, that in our lives as Christians, we've been sanctified, that is set apart. Why are we set apart? To live for the world? No. We're not to live for the world. We're to live for the Lord, and we are to be ones that are to please the Lord with our lives. As Revelation 4 says that you were created for for his good pleasure, and then also to be able to give that word of truth to others as well. So this morning, we want to finish looking at this wonderful, marvelous prayer of Jesus. And in this final section of the prayer, we see that Jesus now is going to be praying for you and for me. He prays for all future believers, and it's a great prayer for us to look at because we will see that Jesus will pray that we might have unity and love. So Jesus not only praying for his disciples that were with him, but also all of us that are gathered here this morning. So let's begin to look at that in verse 20 of John chapter 17, that I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus here praying for all future believers that would come through the word given by those disciples with Jesus. Now, I, I find it interesting that even though Jesus has been telling these disciples that you're going to fall short, you're going to run away, you're going to scatter, you're going to be full of fear in their failings, in their faltering on this night, Peter, you're going to deny me, and all of you are going to be made to weep and lament. As we continue reading, we know that that's exactly what happens when we go into chapter 18. We'll see that most specifically. But Jesus knows that this is not the end of the story, that their sorrow is going to be turned into joy, and that they would come into understanding by the Holy Spirit the things that Jesus has been telling them over the last six nights, and particularly on this night. As he's been talking about, he's going to go away, and where he's going, they cannot come. But he's going to return to them uh, once again. He'll be with them shortly. And, and all the things that, that he has been relaying to them, they're not understanding. They're confused. They're very troubled in their heart. But the Holy Spirit 
when the resurrection of Jesus happens and they realize that he's alive, is going to give them understanding. So he knew that they would come to that understanding as the helper, the comforter, would come to them, be in them, and would come upon them, Acts chapter 1, to give them the power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it would only, that would take place only about 40 days from this time in John chapter 17. It would take place on the day of Pentecost, of course, making reference to Acts chapter 2. And Peter, who had failed so miserably, is used by God in such a powerful way in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost as he would stand up as that crowd had gathered. The Holy Spirit coming upon those disciples in that upper room. And as Peter stood up, he would begin to preach and give the gospel to that crowd in Jerusalem. And 3,000 got saved and the church was then born. So Jesus is praying for those who would get saved on Pentecost and all throughout church history up into the present that have come to a, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So I pray for those who will believe in me through their word. And then verse 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you uh, sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them as you have loved me. So here is the heart of Jesus in this prayer, praying, O Father, that they may dwell together in unity. It would be David that would write in Psalm 133, Behold how good it is and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. And Jesus here praying that the brethren might be one. Uh, even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, verse 21 as we read. I pray that they may be in us and that the world may believe that you sent me. Now the scripture does liken us to be one. That is one body as we read made up of different members, and Christ is the head. And throughout the New Testament, we see that the Word of God declares that we who are believers are one in Christ. So our unity is found in Jesus. Held together by Jesus, we are a family. We are the family of God. And there are, of course, different personalities Within this family, different tendencies, different experiences. Um, you have that in the body of Christ as a whole. You have that in any church, uh, including this church. And in the family of God, as we are establishing unity, it's so that the world may know that there's something very unique and something very special. You see, you and I as believers, as we've already discussed, we're not of the world. We're in the world. But being a part of the church, coming together as one, when the world looks at us with all different personalities and different backgrounds and, as I mentioned, different experiences and, and problems and likes and dislikes, when the world comes and sees us coming to a place like this with our voices and our hearts lifted up in praise and worship to the Lord, when we open up our Bibles to learn of Him, when we minister to one another in that we're encouraging one another, 
praying for one another, as we are blessing one another in the love of Jesus, and He's the one that has brought us all together, it is a very, very powerful and wonderful witness to the world. I mean, you look at us, and, and you look just at our church, and Jesus, you know, He didn't pray that we would all have uniformity. That is, that we would be exactly alike. But we're all different. And as we have differences, as we have different backgrounds and different experiences and all different ages, and, and there's all kinds of differences that we have, yet we're one. There is a bond. And I don't know if you've experienced it, but when you talk to another Christian, maybe in the community, you experience that oneness, don't you? That, that bond that's there. There's, there's a, a bonding that takes place immediately. If you talk to a Christian somewhere in another part of the country or on the other side of the world, there is a oneness that is there that the world doesn't know and, and doesn't experience. And we're all brought together in Christ. And so it isn't talking about Jesus' uniformity. Uh, one of the things that as I get older and the longer I am in this this thing called the church, this one body, I appreciate much more uh, the diversity and differences that are in the body of Christ. When Peter was writing about the church, he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, coming to him, that is coming to the Lord, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter's telling us that, that we are living stones, you and I as believers, and we are being put together to become a spiritual habitation, a spiritual house, a, a holy temple. And Jesus, as he would say to Peter there, remember Peter up at Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus asked the disciples six months previous to this chapter here, that he would ask them, who do men say that I am? And of course, you know the confession of Peter that he said, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded by saying, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. And I say to you that you are Peter, that is Petros, little rock, little stone. And upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Uh, the rock, of course, being Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone of our faith, the rock of your confession. Jesus has built us into a spiritual house, a, a spiritual habitation. We're living stones being put together. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul refers to the church as the temple of God. Later on, he makes reference to our bodies as being the temple of God. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he refers to the church as the temple of God. And the church is a temple of God made up of living stones being put together. Matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, the writer of Hebrews writing to those Hebrew believers there in the first century. And as those believers were coming out of Judaism, they were coming out of tradition, they were coming out of, of uh, having a background of going to that temple in Jerusalem, uh, doing the sacrifices, the temple worship, and they would miss that. It was a very difficult time for them uh, because uh, they felt isolated. They felt like 
that that background that they had was no longer a part of them. And they would look at the magnificent temple, and I imagine that many of them were feeling, oh, you know, the, the sacrifices, the temple worship, the magnificent temple. And here they were meeting in little homes and being persecuted and going through difficulties. So the writer of Hebrews says that the, the Lord is building a house whose house we are. In other words, he was getting those Hebrew believers to realize that there is a be better and more superior temple than the temple that's standing in Jerusalem. And that is you guys. A house who is being built. That is you, a living temple. That temple, that magnificent temple in Jerusalem, would be destroyed a few years later after the writer of Hebrews writes to them. Now, speaking of the temple and the temple being built, in 1 Kings chapter 6, when Solomon built the first temple in the Old Testament, it was being built, it was built with stones finished, and those stones were quarried. They were cut, they were finished, they were all smoothed out there at the quarry that was on the top of Mount Moriah, north of where the temple was. So 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7 states that there was no hammer, there was no chisel or any iron tool that was heard at the temple while it was being built. In other words, they would, in the quarries, you can go to those quarries today, you can see the, you know, the tunnels and, and everything that, that they made in, in making those big stones there on, on the top of Mount Moriah. And they would hammer those stones, they would chisel them, they would shape them, uh, they would smooth them, and then they would take these big stones and they would send them down the hill to where the temple was being built and they would be put side by side building a temple and they would fit perfectly for that holy temple. You see, the church is not the building here, and I think most of you know that. We call it the church. I say all the time to, to Sue, I'm headed out to the church. But we know that the church is you and me, isn't it? We are living stones that are being put together to make this temple. And right now, we as living stones, we're in the world, as Jesus said. This is sometimes as we're in the world, it's kind of like the, the rock quarry. And sometimes as living stones, as the Lord is doing a work in us, continuing to to smooth us and chisel on us and um, to, to do that work in us. We can kind of rub each other the wrong way. There's sometimes a little bit of friction that happens. That's uh, too much friction. And the Lord is just continuing to, to chisel away and smooth away and do a work in you and me. He says to me, Jeff, you know what? You need to be smoothed out in this area. Or you got a chip on your shoulder that needs to be kind of knocked off or whatever it might be. And it's not always fun, is it? Not always fun. But one day, we're going to all fit perfectly together in that heavenly habitation. As Revelation chapter 5, there that heavenly scene that John would later record after this gospel. We're all of us, we're all there, we're singing together that new song. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, for you have redeemed us to God by your blood and have made us priests and kings to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. That is us, the church, and I can't wait. I look forward to that day when we're all going to stand together, fitted together perfectly as a holy habitation unto the Lord. And as the church, the temple of God on this earth, we're still kind of being worked on, aren't we? 
We're still, you know, being shaped by the Lord. It's a work that is in progress. Even though it's something that is very unique and very special and very holy, as the Scripture says, you and I always remember this because the people of the world don't get to be a part of this. They don't get to experience this. But you and I are part of something that is very, very special. And please don't forget that. And the world should look at you and me, should look at this body of believers and see that. And it should be a witness to them. And so Jesus prayed that they would have unity, that they would be as one, so that the world may believe that you truly did send me. So Jesus' prayer towards unity here, and, and not only does it become a witness to the world because as Jesus said in John chapter 12 that if I be lifted up I will draw all men to myself the gospel is for all men uh, all tongues nations peoples and tribes Jesus who brings us together but as we have unity how, how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity it pleases the Lord it's like any of us in our families, in our families and even extended family, when there's unity, when, you know, there's um, a closeness, it's a blessing to us, isn't it, in our lives? When there is friction, when there is division, when there's fighting and bickering, that's when it becomes very hard and difficult. And some of you grieve here today because there is those kinds of things that are taking place in your family. As parents, another example is when we have kids. If you have kids and when they're all playing nicely, it's, it's great, isn't it? It brings pleasure. It's, it's wonderful to see that. But when the kids start bickering and fighting, it frustrates us, doesn't it? And so with the Heavenly Father, when He sees His children together, all the various personalities and character and, and we're all dwelling together in unity... It brings him great pleasure, but it grieves him when there is division, when there's fighting, when there's bickering over things that ought not to be. And as you recall last week that Jesus praying for the disciples saying, I pray that you would keep them from the evil one. Speaking, of course, the evil one being Satan. And you see, one of the plans and one of the devices of the enemy is to divide, is, is to bring division, to cause disruption and tension and fighting. And he knows that if he can do that to a local church, to Christians in a community, then the world will look at that and the world will say, well, you guys are no different than anyone else. It's no different than what I experience at work. It's no different than what I experience, you know, in the world or with my own family. And some of you perhaps have even have experienced it in a church where the division and the bickering and the fighting was so bad that you said, I'm going to stop being in fellowship. I'm not going to go to church anymore. And that's a sad day when a Christian feels that way because I don't want to go to a place where I'm just being torn down, where I see this, where it's not healthy spiritually. So Satan, remember this, that Satan has a New Year's resolution. And that is to keep coming at us. To try to get a foothold into your family, 
I try to get a foothold into this church family and in the family of God in this community. And the reason that he's good at doing this is because he's been doing it for a very, very long time, hasn't he? Matter of fact, he's been bringing division ever since the beginning. You can go to the book of Genesis, and Genesis means what? means beginning. And we see that ever since the beginning that Satan was able to get a foothold in the lives of families to bring division. You see it in the very first family. The son, uh, sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Abel was a, a shepherd, uh, brought the firstborn of his flock as a sacrifice to the Lord. Cain was one that brought the fruit of the ground. And God accepted Abel's offering and Cain's offering. He rejected and Cain got very angry, and he killed his brother Abel. And you see, one of the devices, and remember this, that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, that don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. And one of the devices, schemes, tactics of the enemy is to get people angry, to come against a brother or sister in the Lord. And even though we wouldn't take their lives literally like Cain did with his brother, Jesus said, if you are angry with your brother without a cause, you've murdered them in your heart. You see, Satan will try to use anger, bitterness, unforgiveness to bring destruction, division to a family, to your own family and to the church family. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 6 that our battle isn't with flesh and blood. In other words, it isn't with somebody else, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. You flip the page as you read in Genesis chapter 4, what happened to Cain and Abel? Genesis chapter 9. Noah, the man that God called righteous. After the flood, he was a farmer. He was a, you know, one that planted a vineyard. He drank some of the wine that he made, and he got intoxicated. And there Noah had three sons, and Ham, one of his sons, went into the tent where his father was, uncovered and naked, sleeping. And Ham comes out, and he goes to his two brothers, and he said, Hey, can you believe it? There's Dad laying in the tent. He's drunk, and he's passed out, and he's naked. You ought to see it. So the other two brothers, what they did is they went in backwards, and they covered him instead of exposing him. You see, the second weapon can be gossip, can be slander. It's a tool that Satan has used to cause havoc on the body of Christ. Hey, did you hear about her or him? I'll uncover them, I'll slander them, I'll expose them. Do you know what they did? And you just want to give some juicy news about this person or hear some juicy news about that individual? And I think we all know what gossip is. We slander, we want somebody to look bad rather than really caring about them, being concerned for them. Don't care if the information being passed is true or not. And this can be something that I think all of us, we need to guard our hearts on. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 4, an evildoer gives heed to false lips and a liar listens eagerly to a spiteful tongue. It's not only sin to gossip, the Bible says, and it brings division, but also is sent to listen to it, be a part of it. And ministries have been destroyed and torn down because of gossip that will spread and bring hurt and uncover and tear down and it poisons. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't warn against false teachers or sheep 
sheep's in wolves, you know, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing doesn't mean that we don't protect and guard. But I think, again, as I said, we all know what gossip is. And we need to learn to not uncover and expose, but to be ones that we desire to build up, just as we're told in the scriptures. The third family that had division, Abraham and his nephew Lot, the herdsmen of, of Abraham there in Genesis chapter 13, and then the herdsmen of Lot, they were butting heads. <clears throat> they were arguing. They're, they were arguing over the, the pastures that they were you know, having their flocks on. There was this competition that was going on. And it inter it's interesting that the text tells us there in Genesis that the Canaanites were in the land. In other words, they were watching this fighting and this competing going on between Abraham and Lot's herdsmen. So Abraham said, let not this be strife between us. Lot, you go one direction, and I'll go the other direction so we don't have this. You know, competition is another device that Satan uses within ministries in a church, within, you know, churches in a community. And you see, I can't minister to everybody in Greeley. I, I can't minister to everyone, you know, that is a believer in Greeley. And that's why we have different churches that have different, you know, philosophies and different ways of doing ministry, different emphasis. But it, one of the things that I try to do when I'm with other pastors is I try to stay away as much as possible of, you know, the question, well, how many people do you have? Or how big is your youth group? Or how many buses do you have in the parking lot? Did you notice that probably when you came to church this morning that the traffic was pretty light? It's a lot different than what it's going to be tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock when everybody's trying to get to school and get to work and dropping off kids and, and all these other things. But do you realize that over 80% of the people in this area did not go to church this morning or won't go to church? There is plenty of people to go around for all the churches. There's plenty of people to reach. But what can happen is competition can happen to where it really causes problems and and when it happens in a local church maybe within ministries well I have more people coming to my Bible study than your Bible study or I have more people coming to hear you know me than you and and my small group is bigger whatever it might be or competition within churches it can really cause that problems and the ministries that take place in the body of Christ we need to remember what Paul would write to the Corinthians when he's writing about spiritual gifts in the body of Christ, that the body of Christ is likened to our own bodies. There's different parts of the body, just like in our bodies, hands and feet and arms and all of that. But it's to complement each other, not to compete with each other. The fourth example, as you continue through the book of Genesis, where there's division, Abraham's son, who married Rebekah, Isaac. They had twins, Esau and Jacob, and God told Isaac and Rebekah that the older will serve the younger, and Jacob loved Esau. He loved the food. It was Esau that was hunter, fixed game for him. Dad really liked that. Well, Jacob was loved by Rebekah, and so there was favoritism. Same thing happened with Jacob's sons, with Joseph. Joseph was Jacob's favorite. He made Joseph a coat of many colors, and favoritism would lead to this family being divided, and it can happen in the church. 
Paul would address that with the Corinthian believers as some were saying that I'm of Paul and this group was saying I'm of Apollos and this group saying I'm of Cephas and it caused carnality and division. Parents, when we look at our children, we see the different personalities that they have, don't we? The different strengths and we appreciate how they're unique and very special. And all of us have different personalities and are unique and special in how God made us. And we will be establish special relationships with one another. There's nothing wrong with that. But we shouldn't show favorites to where it brings division. Well, I'm not going to listen to them. I'm not going to pay any attention to them. I'm not concerned about them. I'll ignore them. But we also know that Isaac and Rebekah and Esau and Jacob, there was self-centeredness in their lives. They had their own agendas, what they wanted. Again, Isaac wanted the game. Esau wanted the goods. Jacob, he was deceiving. He wanted to be the top dog. Rebecca, she had her own agendas, and it led to being deceptive. Paul would write in Philippians chapter 2, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself, and let each look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. And then Paul talks about unity through humility. Not being self-centered, but being other-centered. And then the last example is, is what we see with Joseph, as I referred to at the end of the book of Genesis, that it led his brothers to be envious and jealous. They threw him into a pit, sold off into slavery. We don't have time to go into his story, but it wouldn't be until after 20 years that they would be united once again. They were divided for that long. Envy and jealousies can be so destructive where you're so busy looking at somebody else, and you're jealous, you're envious. That's what Saul did of David. And it was Saul that was jealous and envious of David, and it led to Saul wanting to kill David and pursuing him in the wilderness for years. Listen, you don't have to be jealous or envious of anybody in the body of Christ because the Lord loves you, and he made you the way that you are, and he has something for you to do. So you say, okay, pastor, we understand. We know Jesus wants unity in the church and this church family and the things that will cause division that we looked at, and we need to be aware of it. But what is the pathway to unity? Well, let's finish here this morning. As Jesus finished this prayer and says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world, and, O oh, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it that the love with which you love me may, me may be in them and I in them. The pathway to keep us in unity is simple, love. They were loving one another in the love of Christ. Demonstrating that love, Jesus is going to, for you and for me, and going to the cross, but remember this, that Jesus said that they will know that you're my disciples by what? For your love for one another. So, Father, that's my prayer. That's my prayer here for us here at Calvary Chapel, that we would have the love of Christ that abounds in our hearts, and it would abound more and more. I thank you for the love that's here. I thank you for the unity that is in this church, how we come together, and I hear the laughter and the conversations. But, Lord, I also know that we can abound even further. And Lord, to love those as we come together and may it be a witness to the world. 
And Father, I just thank you that Jesus is the ultimate example of love for us here, praying for his disciples and then going to the cross of Calvary that we may have salvation. And I do pray this morning that if there's anybody by chance that is in this building listening to this message, that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, that he is your salvation, that Jesus finished the work, the work that brings us forgiveness and salvation. You can't work for it. Only Jesus provided it through his atoning work on the cross. And if you've never accepted Jesus into your heart, into your life as Lord and Savior, he loves you so much. And it comes salvation and forgiveness by faith in Jesus, knowing that he died for you, a sinner, and then was put into a grave and rose again. He's alive. If anyone has heard that you've never surrendered life to Jesus, would you do so? I want to give you opportunity right now. And you pray right where you're sitting in your heart that, Jesus, I now give my heart to you, my life. I confess that I am a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. And Jesus, I believe that you died for me on that cross. You finished the work. And you were put into a grave and you rose again. Now my desire is I come in faith, believing in who you are and what you did for me, is for you to sit on the throne of my heart. I surrender my life to you as Lord and Savior. And thank you, Jesus, for dying for me and hearing my prayer. And if you prayed that prayer, anybody this morning, what I want you to do is, after the service, come up and tell Pastor John the decision you made so we can pray with you and for you or tell me. But we want to bless you this morning. And for all of us, Lord, I pray that you would bless our day and our week coming up, that this church here, Calvary Chapel, would be a powerful witness to the world out there. As we love one another, Lord, as we love others, as we present the gospel to others. And Lord, I pray that you fill us with your wisdom and Lord, your strength and Lord, with your love this week as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Would you please stand?